You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode is part two of my conversation with Jacoa Hash, founding partner and creative director of The Technique Group, a beauty and lifestyle management firm with offices in both New York and Atlanta. In part one of this interview, Takoa and I discussed her origin story and how she got her start in the entertainment business. In this episode, Takoa breaks down how she built technique into the brand we know today. But that journey did not come without controversy and conflict. After reaching a low point as a result of an abrupt end to a business relationship, Chakoa found her way back into the industry by way of what was at the time a new reality TV series known as Love and Hip Hop. As time progressed, Chakoa used her Rolodex and connections to create opportunities for other creatives in show business. While this led to lucrative gigs for others, Chakoa's business was not reaping the financial benefits of her efforts. With time and some adjustments to the business model, Technique saw financial gains, but not everyone was happy for Tokoa or her agency. And thanks to unfair criticism and rumors regarding her business practices, Technique rather abruptly lost $400,000 in revenue. But Tokoa and her business partner Yanis weathered the storm and rebuilt the agency, which today is a seven-figure enterprise. The transformation did not stop with just the business. Tokoa and I also discussed how she found healing and a restored sense of confidence after reaching her lowest point. So here's more of her story. Please enjoy. Tokoa, we are back for part two of your interview with the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very excited. I feel like we've spoken more in the last week than we have in the last like two years. The upswing of quarantine, being able to catch up with real friends and having time to do so. Exactly. That's been my favorite part of this whole thing. Like just yeah. being able to just sit down, catch up with my girls, mm-hmm. be a little shady, be a little funny, <laughs> talk yes. about some real stuff, all of it yeah. together. It's been great. It has been. And, you know, um, and I think I mentioned this on our first part. No one ever asked me about the origin of my story. So I'm actually excited that we did that because it was kind of unfamiliar to me because you're so focused on where you want to go that you forget from whence you came. So I've listened to that interview three times, call me narcissistic or not, but it was that good. Thank you for being a great interviewer um, and, and engaging me to, to be transparent. So I'm, you know, I'm excited for part two. And like, I, I love doing that because I think just the very nature and temperament of people like us, you know, the people that we deem 26ers, we're always about the next thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, go, go, go. Got to make it happen. What's the next goal on the list? Got to get these bills paid. How do we grow? How do we grow? Without taking a minute to uh, think about how far we've actually come. So and I think important. that's important for a couple of reasons. One, to just be able to affirm yourself and say, look at all that you've done in this, you know, 20 year period or 15 year period or whatever. I think that's important in, in shifting the narrative from looking, look at what I haven't done yet that I want to do. But there's something else that I call a uh, historical faith. And what I mean by that is that's looking good. at the ways in your own history where God has come through for you and things have worked out and you've got to glean from that in whatever the latest faith walk is. Mm-hmm. So for me, that looking back at your own journey of all the ways in which these tiny or big miracles happened in your favor, it's important mm-hmm. to take stock of that because that's what's going to give you the faith to wait for the next thing, which may yeah. even be bigger than what you needed, you know, God to deliver on previously. 
It's true. And, you know, I've tried to make myself um, aware of the fact of, of being grateful in the moment and not so focused on what hasn't happened and what you want to accomplish. And I remember hearing one of those like E! True Hollywood stories about Tony Braxton. And they were like, well, how did it feel to, you know, break a record and have so many, you know, records um, sold? And she was like, I don't think I appreciated it because I was too busy focusing on what I wanted to accomplish that I couldn't be happy for what had already transpired. And I'm like, that was like a light bulb for me. And I'm like, you know what? That's so true. I don't want to be so focused on the future that I can't appreciate the right now or my past or my ancestors' past. And it's hard to do when you're, especially people like us that are overachievers or that work in entertainment. It's always like, I got to keep going. I got to keep moving. I got to, you know, have the next boom. But it's like so much to be grateful for, even in this moment, you know? Um, So I'm trying to like be aware of that and not be ungrateful for what I think I haven't accomplished and, and, and really take stock in what has happened. And, you know, it's hard to do that. You mentioned entertainment business because you you're only as hot as your last thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I remember um, seeing an interview with Oprah and it was after like own had just not delivered in the way that people thought it would. You know, Mm -hmm. in the beginning, it didn't have the Oprah Winfrey effect in the way that they expected with the ratings because she was doing all that spiritual stuff. And, you know, it wasn't resonating as 24 seven programming. And she said in an interview, um, and I may be paraphrasing, but she was like, it taught her that people will be at your feet one day and at your throat the next. Hello. And in this business, <laughs> it is very much that in that yeah. you could be the talk of the town and like yeah. the industry darling based on this thing, this feat that you had. And, you know, not even a month later, it's like we've moved on to something else. And if you're not yeah. rooted and grounded, if your ego is not in check, as we both know, yeah. that kind of movement and shift can break people. It can. It's it's broken me a couple of times. So mm-hmm. I get that. I get that. That's why so, I'm focusing on relationship with God and self-love so that I am not riding off of the highs and lows of what my businesses are. I need right. to know that I am enough regardless of what's going on in business, whether we make our quarterly goals, whether we're in the news or not, whether we have, you know, 10 hit shows a year that I'm enough and I'm okay as I am, as Christ created me to be, regardless of whether or not somebody is patting me on the back. Amen. And I think that's a great segue into like now moving to the next chapter of your, your story. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked about, and we left off at the end of the Josh Howard era. um, And you were saying that that was a really low point for you but it wasn't the lowest, right? Which we'll, we'll get to. Um, but at some point, there was another iteration of technique, right? Mm-hmm. So what were you doing? Let's start with this and then we'll go to like how we met and all that other stuff. But like, what were you doing after, you know, Josh's lawyer was like, he's good. You know, we're not gonna be moving forward with you. Um, between that period and when like the next, vision started to manifest for your business. What were you doing in that, in that, that bridge period? So we talked about Starbucks. So Starbucks Mm -hmm. was in that story and Starbucks kind of happened around Josh, the Josh era. Um, I always loved coffee. I always found a fascination with it. I always wanted to be a barista. So it wasn't really a big deal to me. It wasn't like, it didn't feel like a fall from grace to me to go to work at Starbucks. It was like, this looks fun. And so that's one of the things I did. I worked with uh, Devasha Lloyd at um, the Hammerstein Ballroom. And 
more particularly the, the Manhattan Center, which is his sister company, um, on um, an inaugural project where they were initially known as the Opera House before the Metropolitan Opera House. It's in the Metropolitan Opera House, and I don't remember what year it was in, but they basically bought out the Manhattan Center and um, took all of their um, concerts to the Metropolitan Opera House. So when Devasha asked me, and Devasha is Josh's cousin, but when she asked me to come on board, it was the first time that Haya had a, an, an opera in that house in like over 50 years. And it was with Opera Noir, all all black um, opera house, uh, opera company. And we produced an opera. I and, you know, and I, and I spoke about this in our first part of the interview. My mom always exposed me to the art. So growing up, going to see the opera was nothing new to me. Was I well versed in it? No. But did I have a love and respect for? Absolutely. Um, and it kept me busy and I was learning from her. She is um, one of the best deal closers I've ever met. And I learned so much from, you know, her ability to just see things through and pull the money in. And so that was one of the things I did. And I would take, um, you know, I had kind of like wiped out makeup. So no, my phone wasn't like ringing like crazy about makeup because I told people I was done with that. So who wants to hire a person that doesn't really want to do makeup? Um, But I had an opportunity to do some makeup in between, but I would work there, take small jobs. I actually started going back and forth to Miami, um, actually doing PR and marketing in the porn industry. Did you know this? I don't think I knew this. I mean, I knew there was some some things in between yeah. there before we met. I don't think I know. I knew it was the porn industry, though. So um, I was the producer on um, porn movie sets. And I did some marketing for porn movie sets. And I also, um, you know, hired the hair and makeup teams there. So I was kind of burnt out on New York at the time. I wasn't really making money there. And I had an opportunity to move to Miami in a, in a pretty good situation. And I had pretty much decided to pack up my whole apartment and move to Miami for this opportunity. I changed my address. I had an apartment. I started shipping stuff there. I put lights and gas in my name. And I, before the official move, it was Mother's Day. So I went to go home to see my mom. And I don't know if we talked about this while in the last interview, but I remember watching the Monique show in the bed with my mom one night. And Drusilla, did we talk about this last time? No, we didn't. Okay, so what's Drusilla's real name? Oh, gosh, from Young and the Restless. I can't think of her name. Uh, Is that Victoria Rowe? Yes, her, Victoria Rowe. So she was on there and she was saying, you know, some of the reasons why her her time at Young and the Restless was coming to an end. And she was really upset with the fact that there were no Black hair and makeup artists on set. And that was disturbing to her. And it was like a light bulb went off for me. I really want to give her a lot of credit for um, me deciding to say, I want to help other hair and, and makeup artists that are of color in the industry. But it was like a light bulb for me. And um, she was speaking of, you know, she just wasn't happy there and she didn't understand. And she fought for black and um, black hair and makeup artists to be on set to deal with curls that you have, you know, people didn't know how to deal with her hair. And she was really upset about that. And that was at a time where people weren't talking about it like they are now, but that was a, a light bulb for me. And 
I've DM'd her and I've tried to tell her like, you're the reason why I have, one of the reasons why I have an agency. Um, And I remember during that time I was home with my mom and I did have to go back to New York, but I told my mom when I was laying in bed, I'm like, I I don't want to really move to Miami. And she said, well, don't. So I came back to New York um, and I didn't have a place to stay. I had given up my apartment on the Upper East Side. Um, I didn't have steady work. Um, but you know, some friends put me up and, um, it ended up being good. Like within, you know, maybe a couple of months of me couch surfing in Brooklyn, um, three different people called me about a project and, um, it didn't have a name then, but we now know it as love and hip hop. Three people that didn't know each other. And they're like, I don't want to take the job, you know, like, I'm thinking of you. I don't want to take the job. It's not paying enough or I have another project going on. And so three different people that didn't know each other recommended me to work on what is now Love and Hip Hop. And that gave me the stability to be able to get my own apartment again in New York and to stay there. And, you know, it's been consistent work ever since. So what year was that? That was um, 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want to back up to 2009 because mm-hmm. that that is when we met, mm-hmm. and we didn't even yes. like we didn't even meet in New York, which is crazy. So I've told this story I don't know how many times when people ask about like how I came to New York, how I got in the business, and one of the lessons that I always give people is you know through my own stories, everybody's looking to get in contact with the exec right? Or the person at the quote, top of the food chain. Um, you know, if I could just reach this person who's in the ivory tower, like all, all my connections I need are going to be there. Not realizing that connections can come in many different ways and in many mm-hmm. different forms. So we met my last semester of law school. I had my last year of law school was tumultuous because my grandmother was ill mm-hmm. and I, I had turned down a very lucrative job offer in the Midwest Mm -hmm. because it looked like toxic. And I was like, I'm not doing this after having been there for two summers. And I literally in the middle of a recession, I didn't know like what I was going to do. So I have, you know, classmates whose offers were getting pulled because of the economy. I held on to mine and willfully turned it down. So my, because my grandmother was ill, I was back and forth to Monmouth County, you know, where I grew Mm -hmm. up Mm -hmm. and I had discovered Jadara, right? And she, at the time, yes. she had a salon. Shout out to yes. Sarah, who's great. Um, I love she, my friend. Yes. Yeah, she had a salon like five minutes from where my mom and my grandparents, you know, were living. So I had been there a couple of times. And then my grandmother passed uh, in April. And so I was home around that time. I don't even remember. It was prom weekend. So it must have been weeks after, yeah. like, my grandmother had oh passed because that was May. Right. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, I just get my hair done. I need some self-care, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So I go get my hair done and you were in the salon, right? <laughs> and doing, you know, makeup and kind of helping out for prom weekend because it's jumping, right? <laughs> yeah. kids are in there. So we get, you know, we are introduced and we meet and we just start talking, right? And at that time I was still living in DC, but I was kind of back and forth because of the grief and trying to finish school and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I remember saying to you, I don't know what my next step is, but I have this interest in like startups, entertainment. I might come back here. I don't even know. And you were like, well, here's my info. If you come, if you decide you want to come to New York, like hit me up. And that was it. Right. So then the <laughs> summer, like I'm in D.C. I studied for the bar. 
I'm waiting to find out if I pass the bar and I decide like I'm going back. Like I'm going to sub, you know, sublease or sublet my place here in DC. I'm going back. I'm going to figure this thing out. And I emailed you out of the blue. Like we met, you know, a few months ago, I'm thinking about, and you being you were like, come on. Like I have all these people I want you to be. It'll be fine. Like whatever. But what's crazy about it is, do you remember that one of the people that you wanted me to meet was Rashid? Rashid, yeah. 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 So you and I are talking, I come to, to Jersey, I'm crashing, you know, with my mom and my grandfather, everybody's a mess. Cause my, you know, my grandmother just died a few, it's just like, I don't know what's going on. And you were like, come to New York for the day. At the time you were with Irie and he had a mm. band and I was like, well, I could always draft some, you know, management <laughs> contracts or whatever. So I come to New York and you're like, yeah, I wanted to link you with Rashid and Rashid called. Do you remember this? And he called right in that moment. I'm not surprised. I don't remember, but I'm not surprised. All, all out of the blue. And he called, he, she, you're like, this is Rashid calling me right now. And you were like, oh, I have Alicia here. Like I wanted to link you to, like she just finished law school. And Rashid's like, oh, tell her to come up to BET. That and same I left, day though, right? Yeah, same day. And I left, <laughs> I left your place, your apartment. Mm-hmm. I met Rashid. At the time he was trying to pitch a reality TV show based on the concert venue in Detroit that his mom runs yes. or was running at the time. So that we started working together. The Aretha Franklin yes. Theater. Yes. yes. I don't even remember what the, the former name is. Um, Shane Park. Yeah, Shane Park. But it's yeah. now the Aretha Franklin Theater. And that, so that was my first project that I worked on, um, which wasn't even, I wasn't even in a legal capacity. I was project managing and helping him with mm-hmm. budgets and, you know, trying to figure that out. Uh, but that's, so that's our, the start of our friendship. And then eventually I did that for a bit and I was like, mm, maybe I need to go like <laughs> to a real law firm and do something else. And so I did yeah. that, but you and I kept in touch. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then so as we were talking, you were like, hey, I got this agency. Now we're in 2010, mm-hmm. you know, and that that time frame, you were working on the show already, you know, 2011 and then 2012 comes. So in the 2011, I decide I'm going out on my own, right? Like I can't, I remember I had a friend that had died of liver cancer in her twenties. And I was like, mm-hmm, life is short. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this. And you were like, well, mm-hmm. we about to launch the agency. So what's up? <laughs> and people ask me, how, how did you have a client the first day you turned your lights on? It was because of technique. Wow. Which had, well, didn't even exist on paper yet, legally. No, no, it didn't. Um, so technique was client. If you look at my client roster, which I still have to keep those records, technique was client number one, zero, zero, one. I think I've taken that for granted. I don't know if I really knew that. I know you said it on the on our first part of this interview, but um, that's a big deal. Like I feel honored knowing the powerhouse that you are. Um, and knowing how lost I was at being a business that you even took a chance on us. Like, that's a big deal. I don't take that for granted that I was client number one. And I'm going to make you proud, boo. I ain't finished yet. Please, this I know. (laughs) So that's how we kind of connected. But this story is not about me. This interview is not about me. So let's get back to you, right? So this is the first. So you had already worked with your firm, Monique, who you mentioned in the last Mm -hmm. interview. Mm-hmm. Technique was conceptualized years earlier, but then we mm-hmm. had this agency idea. So you're working uh, on Love and Hip Hop. Love and Hip Hop. At that mm-hmm. point, were you just a key makeup artist? I was just a key makeup artist, um, but I had 
such a robust clientele as a makeup artist that, you know, um, a first season show, they're trying to do it as quickly and as cheaply as possible. So we were working, you know, six days a week for many months. So I didn't have time. And we're talking about 12 to 16 hour days. I didn't have time for these other clients. Um, On top of the fact that, you know, Mona gracefully took a liking to me and trusted me and was like, I want you on all of my other projects. And it, you know, from day one of me stepping on the set of Love and Hip Hop, even with each cast member, I always thought of another person that was better for them. Not that I wasn't capable, but, I, you know, I think about energies and aesthetics and all of that stuff when I'm when I'm thinking about who's right for who. And, um, you know, so I basically in my mind had already paired each cast member up with another makeup artist friend or another hairstylist friend, but there wasn't a budget or a need for that in season one. Um, but you know, Mona would let me go on her music projects. We would travel, you know, I was the main makeup artist for everybody and everything. I was even doing hair at the time and not a good hairstylist, but I was the confident one and I could do a few things, right? I grew up in a hair salon. Um, so in between season one and season two, I really started thinking about how can technique be rebirthed because I hadn't talked about technique in a couple of years. Um, and Monique was in the process of, or already going back to school. You know, we were the dropout kids when we first met. Then we went to New York and we had to focus on paying bills. But after getting our feet grounded, you know, she started thinking about what's next for me. And so, you know, when Technique started conceptualizing in another way, it wasn't that she was on board, but it wasn't her first priority either because we didn't start Technique to be a beauty agency. Um, And I remember being in Detroit, probably for one of Rashid's family's concerts at Shane Park, and Mona calling me when I was in the airport on the way back to New York and running down all the things that she needed me to do and where she needed me to be in the next week. And I had prayed on it. I had manifested it. I had meditated on it. And I just took a chance in that moment. And I was just like, just let me be in charge of everything you need glam. I know so many amazing glam people in New York. I can't be everywhere you need me to be. And she said, yes. And I'm not one to be afraid to ask for anything. But at the same time, I can talk myself out of asking for what I want, just creating stories in my own head. And that was one of the best things I could have ever done was just take a chance. Like, and it's true. Like you ask for something, there's only two answers you can get. Yes or no. It's not the end of the world if it's a no. Right. But luckily she said yes. And and that, you know, opened the door for me to have an agency. Mm. So let's talk about forming the agency the first time uh, and the mechanics of that. (laughs) The look you just gave. So we had an LLC. Monique and I had an LLC when we were, you know, um, working, uh, you know, with the athletes and the nonprofits. We did. Um, I don't know how far we took the organization of it because I remember you saying, Sakoa, this is not completely done. We did it on our own. We did it the best way we knew how to do it. So in season one, I met Yanis Joshua. And um, one of the hairstylists that worked with me that was a friend of mine. It's like, you need to know this lady. This is, she works for a hair company. She's the marketing director there. So they invited me to IBS trade show. And I met Yanis for like five seconds because IBS is crazy. If you're, 
if you're in that industry, it's, it's any trade show was crazy. So we didn't really connect in that moment, but she started hiring. Um, we ended up connecting after the fact and she started hiring technique exclusively to do all of their video content, all of their campaigns, all of their promo stuff. And then, you know, season one was a success, but we didn't know if it was going to really be a success. And then season two, it really took off because that's when, you know, it got a, you know, the heat turned up on the show. And um, so I did a, I did a deal with Indique. Um, Yanis came up with this deal. The owner came up with this deal. And we, they, uh, the ladies of Technique, all the hair was sponsored in season two by Indique. And, um, you know, so I had Technique on paper. Well, kind of on paper, halfway on paper legally, right? But it had a name at this point. Technique had a name and it had a buzz. And um, we had this marketing deal, but Yanis would literally, you know her, blow my phone up. She's a bull, right? She's a bull and a bully. And she would blow my phone up, but I would be on set. Like, I can't answer your random phone calls or I can't answer you all day long. And she would drive me crazy. Like, literally drive me crazy. I'm like, I can't stand this girl. She's annoying. Like, it's not that serious. Like, it was a big deal in terms of what they were putting into it, in terms of all the hair they were giving away. But there was no major money on the table. So I wasn't really pressed to be answering her phone calls in the middle of a scene or when I'm dealing with clients. Like, I had that level of professionalism. Like, I'm paying attention to what I'm paying attention to in the moment, especially on the TV set. So, um, but it was a successful deal. It worked really, really well for Indique. And it was one of their first major deals as a new company as well. Um, but Yanis was annoying, but she was thorough and we got it done. And, you know, anytime you're dealing with any type of pseudo celebrity or cast member or people, they weren't making money off of these deals, but they were getting a ton load of hair for free. So it was very hard wrangling these cast members to do what they were supposed to do, you know? Um, but we worked really, really well together. I like what she brought to the table, but I knew she was annoying. And I tell people this all the time. The main reasons why I didn't like her and why she drove me crazy were the same reasons why I knew she was perfect for technique. So, so, so I remember the first meeting that I had with you and Yanis. Right. Was it on? Was it in Brooklyn at my house or no? No, we were in Manhattan. Okay. Um, we met, I think, for dinner or something like near my office. Okay. And you were like, and at this point, I think you know, you were looking for a new partner from mm-hmm. a business perspective. You and Monique had divorced, mm-hmm. right? Not personally, mm-hmm. from a business perspective. I want you to meet somebody. Come meet us. You know, whatever. And I think I had started putting together what I thought you guys should be doing like for the next iteration. And I remember, you know, we are sister friends. So we have a dynamic that is, you know, we're firing all cylinders and kind of playing off each other and we love each other and all this other Mm -hmm. stuff. And there's a certain energy there. And I remember our first meeting with Yanis. Yanis's face the entire time was like unbothered, like completely unbothered, you know, who are you, whatever. And I mean, and I now know in hindsight that she was just like taking it all in. So I didn't get the aggressive Yanis first. I got the like, I'm not really pressed for you. I don't even know who you are vibe. But you know me, that doesn't bother me. Like it's fine. I'm looking at you like, who is this person that you're trying to bring into our world and into your business? (laughs) The person that saved my life over and over again. Like, yeah, such a good 
Yanis turned out to be a godsend because in a lot of ways, oh, you're this free-spirited, passive, in some you know, some ways yeah, creative. It's like, mm-hmm. go with the wind, it'll be fine. I'm not beat. And mm-hmm. Yanis is, she does not quit, which is how I became more than the attorney to technique. Mm-hmm. And in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, became the client technique. Mm-hmm. So all mm-hmm. I knew is that all of a sudden, Yanis comes into the picture She's beating down doors. It's like, you got to speak at this event, at Yandy's event in two weeks. I'm like, what did this even come from? <laughs> like, I have no internet presence. I'm not doing anything. I'm just out here. And she's like, I made some phone calls and this is what it's going to be. And that's it. Like, so <laughs> the, the yin to your yang um, was, a, was be- a benefit to the business in totality. It, it helped me. It helped in terms of the way I interface with you guys as an advisor. So she was definitely an asset. For real. For real. Like I, I, you know, it was totally a godsend. Um, and I had to get over the fact that like, I, we weren't friends, like the first several years of us, like, you know, her working for technique as a marketing director and soon after becoming a business partner when she really should have just walked out the door, you know, uh, because technique was in such a low place and it had nothing to do with her, but she stuck there. And I'm like, that's the type of partner you need, right? She's not leaving when things are hot and heavy and, you know, and she didn't leave. And I don't have what she has and she doesn't have what I have. And we complement each other and we give each other space to be who we are and to stand in, you know, our best, where we operate in the best capacity. Um, she's been an amazing business partner. I Definitely technique would not be this far without her, for sure. Mm-hmm. For, for so many reasons, like so many reasons, like I am a creative person. I'm used to being on set. So, you know, the first couple of years of her being at Technique, I was still doing makeup full time, um, still booking jobs from my phone. And, you know, that's what she said. She's like, I didn't know Technique wasn't like a fully operating company, you know, because it had such a great name. And, you know, they did such great service. I didn't realize until I actually went to work at Technique that Tacoa was doing all of this from her telephone. I don't even think I had a laptop. Like I literally was closing bills from whatever I could do on my telephone. And we already know I'm not technology savvy. That's not my strong point. My charisma is my strong point. Being able to close deals are my strong point and being consistent and really knowing what clients need from being in the business for 20 years. Like those are my strong points. All that admin stuff I had to learn. So, you know, and and I was producing as well on Love and Hip Hop. And I love producing. I really did. But Technique started really growing and it needed more attention. And she had to sit me down and say, I didn't come to, I didn't, I, first of all, I didn't even have a desire to be an entrepreneur. I came on as an employee. You asked me to be a business partner with a negative bank account and no clients, you know, at a time where we kind of lost everything. And three, I can't do this by myself. So if you want this to work and you want to keep me, you're going to have to stop doing makeup and you're going to have to stop producing. So I had to go and be an office worker. And that was the most uncomfortable thing for me ever. I really think the first year I just sat there and stared at my desk and a computer. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to fill my day completely sitting behind a computer. It was so foreign to me and very uncomfortable. I just felt like a loser. I felt incompetent, 
it was not fulfilling. I didn't feel like I added value in that way, but it did take more than just Yanis to to turn things around and to build this company. So that was very uncomfortable for me. And I'm still working behind a desk and I don't enjoy it, but I found my power in doing it, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think yes. this is where I'm, I'm supposed to be permanently, but you know, I found my power in, in operating behind the business and not being on set full time. And I remember in those early days trying to get you <laughs> to focus on paperwork, which was like... Complete anxiety. Every time, yeah. Every time I'm like, okay, here's you know, here's where we're exposed to liability. Here are the things that are not right, and if we don't get it right, this is what could happen. It was like you would shut down. Like I just, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, No. And you know, there's only so much as a lawyer in that instance that I can do. You know, my personality. All right, I done told you. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Yeah. You can do what you want, but I warned you, right? Um, Yeah. So when my niece came on board, it was when things started to take legs in terms of like, Mm -hmm. you know, not only just some of the legalities and that was still touch and go and there was some bumps along the road. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a tricky business being an agency, right? Mm, It Uh, is. Especially when you don't have the capital to front everything, as we know, when you're waiting to get paid so you can pay other Mm -hmm. people. Um, So from that perspective, uh, you know, the business got its sea legs, for lack of a better term, from a legal perspective. But also, um, which I thought was a great thing, you guys were setting yourselves up from a business perspective and a commercial perspective to make sure you can sustain financially. Mm-hmm. But the problem there is that so many people are just used to Tacoa doing yeah. favors and just, you know, doing whatever, that there was some backlash. A lot of backlash. Um, and that's, I guess, because we were in it together, Delish, I think our heads are going the same place. You know, it. I... We had an agency. We were booking a lot of people on a lot of jobs. A lot of people were making consistent money. I don't want to say a lot of money, but consistent good money, having opportunities they would not had had we not brought it to the table. But I wasn't charging people. Um, and we so that means we weren't making any money, right? And you know, Yanis, it took her a long time to well, not a long time, but uh, consistently having to tell me we have to charge people. And I felt so guilty about charging people. Like I'm like, it just felt uncomfortable for me to charge people. But the other thing is how you start is how you finish. So the fact that I didn't start charging them and they were getting these opportunities and then for us to change protocols, so to speak, everyone said they were on board with it, right? Because they still wanted those opportunities. But they really, people weren't comfortable with it. A lot of people weren't comfortable with it. And the people that made the most money with us weren't comfortable with it. And those should have been the people that should have been comfortable with it. But they weren't. And it created a lot of backlash and a lot of um, a lot of hurt um, for for me because, you know, people started feeling like, well, you're stealing. Why are you taking a cut? I'm out here doing the work. If I was, you know, Brad, the white man, no one would have ever questioned it because I was the black girl that was the friend that would keep key with people that we came up, up the ranks together. It was a problem. And I just, I want that to change in our community. Like, why do you have a problem with me elevating? Why do you have a problem that I'm not the same person that you met five, 10, 15 years ago? Like, if you really care about me, then you're going to understand that I have to grow and that we are going to change. 
And, you know, unconditional love is being willing to accept people as they evolve and change. And, and I found out in a very harsh, ugly way that people were not okay with me changing. Um, and that crea- created a lot of chaos for a lot of time. Right. And I think what I find so interesting about this is that in any part of the business, right, the entertainment business, if you have representation in some way, that representative is paid. Right. So and even if you take it out of the entertainment business, even corporate, the, the organization that connects the company with the employee or the company with the consultant brokers that entire deal. And, and oftentimes they take the check, they take their cut and then they, they you know, pass the rest on to you. So what I found so fascinating about the backlash is that it was all industry standard. There wasn't anything that was happening that was out of the ordinary. You guys weren't trying to get over anybody. It wasn't thievery. It was literally just how the business works. And you have an organization that mm-hmm. is not only finding the opportunities for you, but taking care of all of the grunt work from an administrative perspective, chasing down invoices. And we all know in this business, net 30, net 60, net 90 is not always net 30, net 60, net 90. It's not, so no. All that work for you, but they're supposed to do it pro bono because you two have known each other forever and because you might've done a favor before. That has still to this day blows me. The backlash from that, I still don't understand it. I don't either, um, but I don't either. I don't. And, you know, in the beginning when it was just me, when Monique was, you know, in school and, and doing her own thing, and, and she did help for a long time while we were transitioning to this new phase of technique, the checks would come to me. I would cash the checks. And then I would literally go to each person's individual bank and put the money in their account. You know how much time that took? And You're how backwards that was? Like, just ridiculous making nothing from it. Like I made nothing from the jobs I got people for a good four years. And it was just like, well, how are we going to sustain this business? How, like Takoa, yeah, I need to put her foot down. And she's like, we got to charge. We got to charge the client and we got to charge the artist. And I gave so much resistance to that. Um, it just felt uncomfortable. And I, and I think it's because not enough self-love, not enough self-worth. And I just felt like I wasn't going to be supported in that. And so maybe some of the backlash I manifested in my own mind of having that fear, you know, um, but I am so okay now with charging people. I don't make no qualms about it. If you don't like it, all of our contracts have always been non-exclusive. So if you don't like it, you don't have to say yes to the job. These are the terms. If it doesn't work for you, no love lost. Godspeed. But if you say yes to the job, this is what it is. But it took me a long time to be okay and comfortable and confident that this is what it is and this is how it's going to be. Right. Absolutely. So even though that shift happened, right, we both know it wasn't overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) That technique reached fiscal health. Let's just say that. Um, it was rough there for a while. You know, this is it back. Very I think this, rough. Is, this is back in the Brooklyn office. Yeah, years. Um, I'm gonna say the it, the hit the fan in 2014. I said I wasn't gonna curse as much on this interview as I did on the last one. So okay, that's my first curse word. <laughs> 
I'm gonna keep it at a you, bit of you, you're loosening up now, which I appreciate. I feel like you felt like you had to be more conservative this time. And well, I you, you know, that. I've gotten a, I've gotten a lot of feedback from the from the first part of the interview, and I want to make sure that in me telling my truth, that I'm not disrespecting anyone else. That's important to me. Um, and I also don't want to be a potty mouth with an open interview. I'm sure some of the saints is gonna listen. <laughs> Oh, you know the Saints support December 26th. The okay. aunties, the uncles. And I always think about them. Like, I can see their faces flash before me when somebody <laughs> says something crazy. But hey, you know, everybody's speaking their truth. Oh, yeah. So, um, no, things really hit the fan. So, you said something earlier, and I don't even know if I can remember um, the reference. But for, for a minute with technique, I, I felt a little bit, again, Kind of like how I did with Josh. I felt confident, big, invincible. I felt like, you know, things were just going so well. And, I, you know, we were booking, booking, booking and still not taking money from people. But we were busy, you know, and busy felt important, even though it wasn't adding up in the bank account. But it gave me a sense of pride. And um, I think that the confidence that, I was feeling was fleeting one. It wasn't grounded in the right reasons. And so when things came crumbling down and people started having strong people that I care about and that I believe in and quite frankly put on, started having stronger feelings, strong opinions about me and my leadership, then because they didn't believe in me anymore, I didn't believe in me anymore, you know? So my my self-confidence was riding on other people's perception of me and not who I should have known that I was and what I was doing. And I had this confession and I just came up with this confession maybe a year ago after still dealing with the backlash of the lowness of, you know, kind of losing everything and and taking four or five years to build myself back up and my self-confidence and saying that I will no longer be held hostage by someone else's perception of me. Mm, And I did. I held myself hostage to someone else having a negative perception of me. I'm not saying I didn't make mistakes, but did I really allow someone else's opinion of me define my self-worth? And I did for a long time. I remember me and you being at a, a business brunch and getting a very detrimental phone call of a client being unhappy based on what an artist said that should not have been talking to a client. And it was a client that I held at a high standard and that I was honored to have. And for them to not take me serious enough to have a conversation with me and have a conversation with an artist about my business, it made me feel really, really bad. It hurt. And then it was a snowball effect. And so that was the first phone call, a Sunday in Fort Greene. And you happened to be with me. And that was only God. Like, we didn't see each other that much. You live in Jersey. I live in Brooklyn. We didn't see each other often. That was nothing but God that you were with me that day. Because one, you could be there for me as a sister friend. And two, to give me legal counsel. Mm -hmm. But that week, um, and I think you know this, like we lost like $400,000 worth of business in that one week. Yes. It was so, it was like, that big client fell off and then it was like a snowball effect of other clients falling off. And so, and Yanis wasn't even my business partner at the time. She was a pseudo employee with really no salary because there was no money to be made because I hadn't set the business up in a way for it to make money. Mm -hmm. And so that just 
2014 was the lowest of the lowest. So Yanni says it, she knows it down to the dollar in a sense. We had like a negative 40 some dollars in the bank, you know, when I was like, I want you to be my business partner. Because when I say those things that happened to me and those clients leaving had absolutely nothing to do with who she was or anything that she did. And it had everything to do with a personal test for me and a personal attack on me. Really Mm -hmm. had nothing to do with technique. It was really about me. It was about people thinking that I was too big for my britches um, and artists thinking that I don't need you. I really should have this client. This client invites me to dinner. This client takes me on trips. This client likes me more than they like you. Why do I have to go through you to have this client that doesn't even like you? You know why? Because I, I brokered the deal. I brought the deal to the table. But, you know, when people, especially with a glam relationship, it's a very person, it's intimacy. It really is. Anytime someone is doing, you know, our hairstylists are our therapies, our makeup artists are people we trust. Anytime you're in that type of environment, you create bonds with people. And they thought that those bonds were bigger than what I had to offer. And it was like, I don't even want to consider you getting a piece of what I'm doing because I see this person five days a week and you're nowhere to be found. But I brokered the deal. I brought the client to the table. So why, and then you call yourself my friend. Why wouldn't you want me to eat off of this? Why not? You know, but I literally, I literally started believing the rumors. I literally started believing that I literally was stealing from people. I started believing what other people were saying about me. That's how I know I didn't know myself. That's how I know that the confidence that I thought I had and that I shown wasn't real. It was fake. Because if I really would have known who I was, I could have dusted my shoulders off. I'm not saying that it wouldn't have hurt, but it would not have kept me down for so long. And it kept me down for a long time. I was embarrassed to go around there. And I look back at it. I'm like, I didn't steal from nobody. So why am I embarrassed? I allowed their perception of me to hold me hostage. And what I find, you know, I think for me, not even from a legal perspective, but from a sister friend perspective, which was so infuriating, is knowing that you are a person. You really are a mother hen. You know, as I said, Mm -hmm. like you will take care of everybody, whatever, that you will give to your detriment, right? Because you believe in sowing and reaping, which we all do, but you will take it a step further and sacrifice (laughs) anything for anybody make the connection. I know this person, let me get this opportunity. I will show up. I will do what have you. So knowing your heart and your spirit and the integrity that you walk in and watching that play out um, and having been in the room on multiple calls and the way people would spew vitriol. I mean, people that if we said their names, which we're not going to do, people would know their names. Um, And me knowing you personally and knowing you from a business perspective and also knowing financially what wasn't being made because you were always just helping people out. Um, it was hard, it was hard to watch. And mm. I think I don't even realize the toll it was taking on you and, and, you know, the coping mechanisms that were happening that I didn't even understand. I don't even think mm-hmm. I really saw it at first. Um, no, I was hiding. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to talk about it. Like I literally spiral out of control. Like, you know, um, we never gave up working on a business. We went harder and harder and harder. And Yanis and I, um, I want to go back to that because like, like I said, this was not her, this was not her trial to bear. This was not her burden to bear. And she stuck there with me and she defended me to the death as if it was her name 
that was being attacked. And it wasn't. It wasn't even Technique's name that was being attacked. It was me as a, as a person. And the way she stood by me and when I didn't have strength to fight back, like I started being afraid to fight back because I'm like, oh my God, the attacks are going to come more and more and more. And so I just stopped fighting. I'm like, I stopped fighting with people. Not saying I stopped fighting in terms of let's figure out how to fix this business and make it right. But I stopped fighting with people. I stopped defending myself. I just started hiding. And she stuck up for me. And that's why I asked her to be my business partner. Because I'm like, she could have took it, taken her master's degree and her experience and gone and got a real job without the drama. Because, <laughs> you know, even though we knew it had potential, we didn't know when we were going to make money again. You know, we didn't know when that was going to happen. And she stuck there with me. And we called that time period Armageddon. Armageddon because literally day and night, all we were doing was figuring out how to make it a real business and how to come back stronger. Right. Um, and, <laughs> and when I say angels showed up all the time and Rashid, you were definitely one of those angels, you know, but Rashid was one of those angels. I remember he would come to the office and he would bring food. And I remember one time we, we called Rashid, Rashid Rasheed was is an actor before he was a producer, so he likes attention. And he would we call him. He'll stand in the middle of the floor and have these "I have a dream" speech moments. And I remember one time he sung a the Sam Cooke song, "The Change Is Gonna Come," and he did it with so much conviction. It was so beautiful, and it wasn't for him. It was because he believed in us. And so many people just showed up to like keep us going. I'm sorry, we might have to stop. I promise I say I'm I'm healed from this and I'm I'm over it and I understand it, but that part that time period was just so dark. It was ridiculously dark. It was so dark. And I do feel healed from it, but it's just it's hurtful. It's it's hurtful. Um and and I didn't handle it well, you know, like I started drinking really heavy, um, and I started hiding from people. Like it's like, okay, I felt like I was too confident in the streets, too powerful in the streets. So I didn't think this in my head, but subconsciously it's like, well, let's self-sabotage because if you're not beautiful and confident and, and always on, then people won't attack you. And that, it's the psychology behind it. Like, I really feel like that's one of the reasons I started self-sabotaging. Like nobody knew I had a drinking problem really, like, because I did it after work. And I did it alone. It wasn't like I was outside spiraling. But as soon as the workday was over, it was like, that was my comfort. That was, that was what made me feel better. That's what made it feel not so heavy. Um, but, so, you know, subconsciously, it's like, wow, you just fell apart so people wouldn't attack you. And yeah, that was the psychology behind it. If I don't look beautiful and I don't feel beautiful, then people leave me alone. If I don't look happy, then people won't feel like they need to take something away from me. So if I dim my light, then the attacks won't come. And, you know, it's, it's so the drinking thing, right? Because we were communicating a lot and corresponding and uh-huh. I was on my own <laughs> dark spiral <laughs> as well and trying to figure out why I ever got an entertainment business in the first place. Um, and so we were all at that time just just trying to make it right. And mm-hmm. I remember... I think we were at, you had told me like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm drinking more. 
I was like, eh, you know, like, okay, you know, maybe, but I didn't think that it was that serious. And I remember, I don't even know if you remember this. We were, I was, um, we were at a speaking engagement of mine and a bunch of people were there. Like Tamika Mallory was there, like all these people. And um, back before Tamika, like took over the world. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't even remember what I said to you, but it was nothing like major. And you like raged about it, like bit back, right? And I was like, what? Like, what is happening here, right? No, don't be jumping barking down on me because I have <laughs> or what have you. And I remember you saying, I haven't, I'm not drinking today. Uh-huh. And I remember you being so on edge. And I think for me, that was the first eye opener to like, oh, this might be a real problem. Like, way more than I realized that this is a coping mechanism. And if that crutch is not here and we're under a stressful past, fast paced, urgent situation where all these people and energies and it was a lot of industry and really people there. um, It was when I first realized that like, this could be a little bit more serious, you know, than I realized um, earlier or than I knew. Mm -hmm. Uh, So talk about, I'm like, do I ask the question now? Because I feel like we've gotten into it. Describe a time you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day, or you want to? Yeah, say- this is no, this is this is perfect timing. So one okay. of the one, so um, one of the main people that I feel like attacked me the most during this time that was a dear friend, still a dear friend because I, you know, I love him. What can I say? Um, but I feel like whether he realizes it or not, he went hard to make sure that I didn't have what he wanted. Right. Um, and in the middle of me still going through it and, and so far from coming out of this dark place called bawling, asking me to pray for him. And I'm like, I didn't say no, but in my mind, I'm like, are you serious? Like, really? And I said, give me a second. And I had to take some deep breaths. And I, and I know that's and I probably said this on the last interview. That's one of my best gifts is the 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 spirit of prayer to be able to pray to be able to find words but I did not want to pray for this man I did not want to pray for this person I did not like that was so hard but I know that he needed it if he called me for it you know but I'm like you're up here and I'm down here a lot of because of you trying to bring me down so that you can rise higher or that's how it comes across to me and it was very hard to do that, but I did it anyway. And I don't know if that was the right thing to do, but I, you know, that was very hard. I really want to be like, really? Like you're calling me to pray for you. Have you thought about what your lashes on me, your emails, your talks to clients about me has done to me? Have you considered where I am, but you need me to pray for you? So that right. was my be extraordinary on an ordinary day. And you do, you, you extend a lot of grace to people. And well, because I want that same grace back. And, you know, I, you know, I believe in karma. I believe it's mm-hmm. real, but I also, I don't want what I deserve in life. I want God's continual grace and mercy. So I don't want people to be paid back for the things that they do in life, because if they mm-hmm. get paid back, then that means God has to pay me back from when I've fallen short. And, and I, and I, you know, karma happens naturally, right? But I ask for grace and mercy every day. And it's not saying, okay, Takoa, 
you know, do something bad today and then pray for grace and mercy after. No, naturally, I want grace and mercy. It's one of the first things I ask for in the morning. I ask for it throughout the day. I ask for it at night. So I can't expect for God to extend it to me if when someone else does something negative or bad, whether to me or to someone else that I say, karma's a you're going to get paid back. No, I can't say that to the next person if I don't want it for myself. Absolutely. So, you know, what's interesting is I remember so much of the dark period, but I don't remember when, like, everybody started to turn the corner. (laughs) We were running on similar tracks there for a while. Yeah, we were. Um, It was a a crazy time. We were so much on... And this is one one reason, and I don't know that we've ever talked about this because we have like a sister relationship mm-hmm. and because we care about each other, probably on top of the fact that I couldn't afford you at the time, probably another reason why we should not have had a lawyer-client relationship because mm-hmm. we had too much empathy for one another. So right. you couldn't hold me accountable to what I was supposed to do consistently because you had empathy for me. And then I couldn't hold you accountable for what my expectations were because I had empathy for you. But yeah, we were in dark periods mm-hmm. at the same time, maybe in different ways. But I also feel like we were a crutch in our empathy for one another right. in, our, in our dark periods. Yeah, it was comforting to a certain degree, but it didn't bring out the best in either one of us, mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, because... We just wanted to make each other feel better instead of giving kind of like that tough love to one another during that time period to just rise up. So I, um, I don't know. It's still shifted. I don't know when it would change. I don't like, you know, 2016, 17, 18, 19, you know, so we hit our first million in 2016 was our first million dollar growth. So 2014 negative account balance, lost $400,000 worth of business. And then we just worked to get it back. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but still, even with that, it didn't feel amazing to, it didn't feel like I was proud, but it was still like, we still, we still weren't making money. So yeah, we closed the million dollars worth of business, but I'm still living paycheck to paycheck. So I don't know, like, good for the company it wasn't really good for me yeah and you know people um it's they look at the glitz and the glam of this mm-hmm. business and not realizing that there are a lot of people with a lot of access and a lot of clout but not a lot of money yeah um yeah. and which is one of the reasons why i was like i'm out let me go <laughs> focus on this tech thing because yes, yes um what i found and it wasn't even just Technique. A lot of the clients that I had on the entertainment side of the business were depressed, living paycheck to paycheck, had been huge in the business, and then we're trying to recalibrate. Um, and then the empath in me, I wasn't collecting fees. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, that's impacting me financially. So I can't be the best lawyer that I want to be because yeah. I'm stressed about overhead and, you know, accounts payable and all this other stuff. And it became just this really murky relationship. Right. Yeah. And and one of the things that you brought up earlier, um, which I think is important to to mention, is the, the race aspect. Right. Because it's, it is hard for us. We don't have the startup capital. We don't have the rich uncle. We don't have access to the hedge funds and the VC firms in a lot of ways. So I came into this this business really passionate about wanting to help people, even if it meant I couldn't charge them market rate, uh-huh. even if it meant I did a lot of work and I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for free, right? Of work Mm -hmm. for free. Mm -hmm. And then the stress 
that like it was causing me in my own life and in my practice is affecting the level of service I'm providing. And it just, so I, I think that it took a while for me to learn in the business that like, yeah, it's great to be on VIP lists. It's great to end up on Getty Images, but if you can't keep your lights on, like what are we yeah. doing here? What you are know? we doing here? Um, yeah. So my, I think around the time that technique hit a million dollars worth of business, I was sort of starting to shift and, you mm-hmm. know, other things. I started doing corporate consulting and all this other stuff was going on. Um, but let's talk about when you decided to leave New York. So I, uh, I, I was, I was in Atlanta for work and I would come to Atlanta for months at a time. And I went to church with a friend and I sowed a, a seed, maybe, maybe the biggest seed I had ever sown. Um, it was at a church and I, and I came out and, and got in a car and I heard guys said, you need to move to Atlanta. And that might've been in 2016. It might've been before then, honestly. And I don't remember the year, honestly. And I didn't move right away. And I remember feeling so agitated because I have never had a desire to live in Atlanta, like never. And I really didn't understand that and I don't know that I had ever heard God's voice so clearly to me or knowing that it was him speaking through me and but I just knew it was real um and I couldn't ignore it and you know I don't remember what year I left New York it's been like three and a half years now I think um but I didn't want to leave New York I loved my little one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn I loved all of my neighbors. I was the mayor of the block for sure. Um, I was very comfortable with my life there. And it was all I knew. Like New York is my adult home. It's really where I gained legs is where I experienced real adulthood on my own. And I felt like I was betraying New York. You know, I had such an amazing family circle in New York. I didn't want to leave. I, I'm a Southern girl, but i feel like I don't naturally connect with people in the South. Um, it's in Atlanta because it's such a, can be, can be a fake city. And I've had so many horrible experiences, of people not being genuine in New York, you know, mm-hmm. in New York to this day, you know, our friend, my, I can have a friend and say, Hey, I want to link up, but you know, I don't have money today. No one is, no one is feeling embarrassed about that. No one is, is I'm not judging my friends. It just feels like Atlanta, if you tell someone you don't have money in Atlanta, you're ostracized, you're cut off, you're not seen as whatever. And when I moved to Atlanta with Love and Hip Hop the first time, I lived here for a year, whatever year that was, the first season of Love and Hip Hop Atlanta. And I had so many horrible experiences with people that were thirsty and that um, didn't present themselves in the most transparent light. And I just was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to ever connect in this city. And it ended up being the best thing for me for many reasons, a better quality of life, lower cost of living. I am closer to my parents. I can get home very quickly if I'm needed to, you know, to see my parents in North Carolina. Um, and it's an amazing city for Black people and entertainment and TV and film. So I, I think I cried for the first month that I moved to Atlanta. I did not unpack my stuff. I kept my stuff in storage for over a year. I um, I stayed in Miami and New York the first year more than I did in Atlanta. I just had a hard time like uh, connecting to the city, but I also didn't give it a chance because I lived out of literally one suitcase for a year before I ever unpacked my stuff. Um, but it's been the best decision that I could have made. It's, you know, 
when God tells you to do something, trust me, even if you don't see it, it trust, 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 trust that it is for your good. And it's been such a blessing for me to be in this city. Um, and I don't regret it at all. And I do not miss New York. And I don't feel like I've betrayed New York. I feel like it served its purpose in my life. Um, and I will always have an affinity for New York and it will always be my number one city. But I'm happy that I'm that I was obedient for once. Yeah, <laughs> my mom always uh, has always said to me is you got to know when the brook is dried up and when the brook yeah. is dry up, it's time to move on. And, you know, I remember when you this is probably the most I've ever talked about like myself in an interview and <laughs> the things that I've witnessed with the guests. Cause obviously but we won. We're one. We've been through so much together. Yeah. So I have all this intel, right? But <laughs> I remember when you told me like you were leaving, I was like, mm, I don't, you know, I don't really know if this is really gonna happen for real. But you were like, no, I'm out of here. Um, and I bring this up because there's a lesson in it. And I remember like feeling like, well, wow, like one of my right-hand people. It's out of here. And I do not, I've never had an emotional connection to New York. I've always been here for professional reasons only in the fact that it's close to my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, our, our dynamic from a business perspective, you know, we were uncoupling from that. And I think it's sort of happened organically, right? I was coming out of full-time practice. Things were different. And I remember, you know, you decided that you were leaving and I knew that, that was probably a good decision, even though you couldn't pay me to live in Atlanta. But yeah. I knew that, that was probably a good decision. But I remember feeling like, wow, like, A, I'm losing my first client. I'm also probably not going to be in solo practice much longer. So I, it was the right right time. My homegirl is leaving. You know, so you go from talking to somebody because everything's intertwined with mm-hmm. business, personal relationships, talking to somebody all the time, even if you don't see them all the time. Yeah. So now, okay, we don't have the same business relationship. Technique is on an incline and I've been there from the bottom. I'm now going another direction and she's leaving the state, right? Um, yeah. But the lesson in that is that oftentimes we hold on to things because it feels comfortable. Familiar, yeah. And it feels familiar. And as you mentioned earlier, it's a crutch situation. Right. So Mm -hmm. people feel like, okay, we understand each other. We have similar energies. And sometimes that shift has to happen for people to evolve. And a lot of times people don't know how to engage in the shift and maintain the connection, even if that dynamic and that connection is different for the sake of their own health, their emotional health, their business health, what what have you. And you hear this all the time, like business partners who were friends and they're going a different direction, but the friendship goes down the drain in the in the process. And um, the way, the way that our lives have evolved and changed and grown in the, in the last couple of years, I'm just grateful that we were able to ride out those transitions professionally and personally and maintain the connection, right? Yeah. That the connection that happened in a salon in yeah. Neptune, New Jersey, 11 years yeah. ago. Um, yeah. And I'm always encouraging people that, you know, you, uh, you have to understand one of the things I say to myself when I'm feeling offense or like taking things personally is that everybody's in their own personal battle. Yeah. And, and and sometimes how you were experiencing things are through the lens of what you're going through and how mm. they're acting towards you is because of what they're going through. And, and to your earlier point, we all need to extend a little more grace. We need to extend yeah. a little more grace. Um, I, um, I, it's, it was hard for all of my friends. Like, you know, of course you guys supported me, but all of my friends made it very clear that they were very uncomfortable with me leaving. I don't think 
I didn't even think that I would ever leave New York. And even to this day, like my friends that are so happy that are in Atlanta, that are so happy that I'm here, they're on edge that I'm going to go back to New York any day. Like they really think that this is still temporary. They still say, I can't believe that you really live here. I never thought it would be true. But I had gotten to a point in Brooklyn and mainly not because of business, but because of me liking my little apartment, um, me loving my neighbors. Like I really had a, the best sense of community ever on, on Jefferson Avenue. I didn't want to leave them. They were my family. And it's very hard to grow when you're that comfortable. So, you know, you have to take yourself out of a comfort zone in order to stretch yourself. And so being in Atlanta, where I never thought I would be, and being uncomfortable allowed me to stretch myself. And business-wise, I've maintained and I've grown mentally as a business owner, um, not necessarily expanded in Atlanta in the way that I, I, I want to for technique, but it's been amazing for me as an individual. And, um, you know, I have, I've, I've ridden or rode the wave of, I've allowed my self-esteem to ride off of the, the lows and highs of technique. And I never want to do that with any business ever. I need to know who I am, whether technique makes a billion dollars tomorrow or folds tomorrow, that I need to know that I am whole and that I'm enough. And, and that's what's important to me. And that's what I've been working on since I've been in Atlanta. It's like really dealing with my demons, really learning why I didn't love myself, really learning who I am as an individual without someone telling me that you're an amazing business owner without someone telling me, thank you for making a difference in my life. I need to know that I'm enough if I have nothing. And that's what I'm focused on here. That's a good word. The truth, girl, because I can't, you know, if, if my businesses go through another spiral, you know, I mean, we're in a spiral right now, a pandemic. I need to know that I'm okay regardless of whether or not clients are calling me. Mm -hmm. I cannot ride the wave and I can't let that be uh, wrapped up in who I am and, and my self-esteem. I've got to keep doing the work, but I can't, I can't allow it to affect who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. So shifting gears, um, what is your vision, right? Even though you say if technique makes a billion dollars tomorrow or if it falls in a perfect world, what is your vision for the organization? Oh, well, oh my gosh, it's so big. Um, I want to continue to offer a space for Black and Brown and minority creatives. I want to continue to offer them platforms that create legacy money. I want to continue to break down barriers of what we should be paid. Um, and, you know, a big part of technique is we, we, take, we take stock in giving back and, you know, participating in charities and supporting our artists when they create their own charities, um, you know, and not, and not letting that go to the wayside because we're so focused on making money. Um, you know, we definitely want to create more content for television. Um, we, we definitely love working in the TV and in the film space. Um, and we want something to lead to our nieces and nephews and maybe our nieces children at some point. If they choose, like we prided ourselves in trying to make this a family business. And when we see opportunity for our families to be a part of it and get a check, then that's what we want to do. Um, and there's, you know, there's so much room for uh, black people in the beauty space. And we want to continue to to expand on that, Absolutely. to expand on that. Yeah. 
And, you know, we don't we don't shy away from the tough questions here on on December 26th podcast. So there are people who are going to hear this and they're going to say you built your business uh, based on a franchise that doesn't always show us in the best way as women, you know, as black women uh, built on, you know, some drama and salacious behavior. You know, how do you how do you sleep at night or how do you justify that? What's your answer to that question? What's your response? (laughs) You know, I feel like uh, I want to give a shout out to Shala, Shala Evans at Essence, who's a beauty editor. I think she spoke very well of it um, in the article she wrote about technique. Um, We don't create the content on these jobs. And what we can't take away from this is that, you know, the vision that Mona had has created hundreds of jobs consistently for a lot of Black people, you know? A lot of black people have bought homes because they've been able to work consistently on this. A lot of black people have or minorities have um, produced a resume that has allowed them to go on to major networks. Um, and I it's been a tug of war for me. You know, of course, in the beginning, like all of us, it was salacious in the beginning um, and it was fun to be a part of something so wildly popular, but it has been hard for me um, because it doesn't align with who I am as the person. Um, but I understand that we have allotted opportunities to Black creatives that otherwise they would not have found a space to grow. And it's a stepping stone. It's it, it's not where people stay. So many people have you know, garnered this opportunity to go further in their careers where now they are on A-list movie sets. They are working with A-list clients. They are traveling around the world. Um, you know, so there's an audience for it and it's a client. It's not my content. So, you know, I've tried to separate it. It's hard for me. You know, it's hard for me um, to separate it because I do feel um, that we've created um, or that we've had some backlash for being a part of it. I feel like a lot of people have shied away from doing business with us because we've been a part of this franchise. Um, But I know the blood, sweat and tears that this franchise was built on and the hard work and, um, you know, efforts that people have put into keeping people employed and these cast members, like where else would they make money if they didn't have this platform? How would they have been able to create businesses if they didn't have this platform? Is it my audience? No. Am I, do I relate to them in a lot of ways? No, I don't. Um, But there's an audience for it. And, you know, we're not one type of people. All black people are not the same. You know, there are people that can can relate to this and this is their everyday life. Um, And so, you know, I try not to feel guilty about it um, because someone is relating to this. Someone understands this this lifestyle. Um, and, you know, it's created, it, it helped me to gain legs at Technique. So I can't be ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I respect and I, I love about you and that you are so willing to be open and transparent um, because there are a lot of people who are eating yeah, off a lot of this right. stuff and you would never know it because yeah. they don't admit it publicly, but we see it in black and white. We know yeah. who's orchestrating things and who's who's garnering a considerable amount of money mm-hmm. um, off this content without publicly acknowledging that. So, you know, one of the things that I believe is that whatever you choose to do, just own that, right? Yeah. Just own it and be honest about it. And there's a lot of that that just doesn't happen. And you're right. We are not a monolith. We are not. Mm-hmm. I, you. So I've been on the periphery of love and hip hop since the beginning, because mm-hmm. of you. 
I have mm. never seen one entire episode of the show ever. Uh, never. I've met cast members, as you know. I've met people yeah. before they even got on the show. Right? It yeah. was oh, so and so is going to be on the next season, and I've never seen one episode. Um, it's not for I, everybody. Yeah, it's but not. there is obviously an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's an, an audience for it, and all of us. I think we can say we've. I don't know anybody who's kept their lights on that can say like. I've agreed with everything my Fortune 500 empl- employer has done or, you know, every every place I've worked, I, I, I'm okay with their um, their business practices. It's, you know, it's the nature of the beast. You're in a business mm-hmm. where it's visible, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're often, you know, for sure. Um, but we talked about the vision for technique and all of that, but there's so many other giftings that you have. Um, and so it's so funny that you mentioned to me after the interview last week's interview that like you really are engaged in industrial psychology, right? Yeah. All these different personalities. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I told you, I see you brokering deals and, and doing all these, this other, other stuff. So which ways are, do you want to diversify in the next few years in terms of your business and what you bring to the industry? I love brokering deals. Mm-hmm. I like, I, I love brokering deals. Like, um, and I never considered myself a salesperson. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think about who I'm helping and whose life is going to change, um, I brokered a couple of deals today that just had me feeling like I was seven feet tall. Like, you know, like, you know, it feels really good, especially when you have a, a personal connection to someone and you believe in them. So I'll, I'll never stop brokering deals. I think I broker deals when I'm not even thinking that I'm brokering deals. I mean, the other night, like I called you, like, I think, uh, like, can we, can you put me in an email with this person? I think I got a job for them. I don't know them, but I know you do. Like, put me in an email. Um, I have focused so much on other people and what their vision is and, you know, in me doing my self-work and, and cleaning up my mess, it's like, okay, Takoa, did, you know, you do have a natural affinity for helping people, but did you do this because you're hiding from what you're supposed to be doing for yourself? And so, you know, I've had to come to grips with, with that and, and, and be okay with not hiding, but I think I had to work on cleaning up my, my stuff so that I can live more in my truth. And, and I've been, Seeking God, God really, really hard for him to, to give me the vision for, for what's next. But I, I naturally just love helping people. It may be in the nonprofit sector. Um, I definitely have some books in me that's praying and writing. I feel like those are two gifts I was literally born with. Like, I feel like those are two gifts that I, I, I was literally born with. Um, and I, I shy away from the writing. Um, because it's so personal, you know, like it's real personal for someone to look at your work and, and, you know, like Erica, we sensitive about our, our stuff. I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about it. So I've shied away from it, but it's something that I've, I've started picking back up in the last year. Um, so I really, I really don't know what's next, Delisha. I'm seeking God. I'm trying to be patient. He might've showed it to me and maybe I don't want to see it for what he is telling me it is. But I really, I really don't know. But um, it's more to come. You want to tell? Oh, me? that's absolutely. I mean, I have my ideas, so you know. Will you tell me, please? <laughs> I was talking about this. Okay, we won't talk about this on the air. But <laughs> I mean, there are many things that that I see 
for sure. It's not going to be in any traditional sense in the way that it's been done before, but you already know, like, a lot of what I've talked to you about that I yeah. see for you. But I mean, let me take this opportunity to say that I'm incredibly proud of you. I'm proud of what you. you built with technique because you wrote it out from the gutter, like literally having to pull yourself up from below zero uh, yeah. to build this business after having gone through several iterations of Valley experiences we talked about in part one, um, mm-hmm. but you stuck with it and you stuck with it and you made it a business that is sustainable and yeah. you're providing opportunities in an, in an industry where we are discriminated against. We don't have pay equity and the list goes on and on, which is why I know there's so much more to the story that goes beyond, you know, placing people behind the scenes. Uh, you know, there are movies and there are things that are coming, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I just want you to know I'm proud of what you built. Um, I'm excited to see what is to come. But outside of what you have built, I'm more proud of the person I've seen you evolve into in terms of the security that you have and the confidence that you have in in yourself now in a way that's genuine. And most importantly, the peace and the boundaries that you said, the peace that you will do whatever to hold on to. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the most important because you can't live being tormented. Oh no, it is, it's taken a long time. And you know, the, the process doesn't stop, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's funny when I started this journey of, uh, self-love and self-care, you know, there have, I've had days where I'm like, I've been doing my work. I am good. I can take the day off. As soon as you think you can take the day off, that's when some more stuff just manifests and shows up ugly stuff. It's like, there's no days off. From working on yourself. There's no like thinking that you've arrived and it's just going to stay there. You have to constant. it's like watering a plant. You have to constantly work on it. Um, so I, and, and I have, I don't say this often. I probably can count on one hand the number of times I've said this in my whole life. I am proud of me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, it's not, um, I've, I, I've prided myself on being humble and it's a good quality to have, but it's also good to be able to know when you can pat yourself on the back and be proud and be a little, you know, cocky about it or confident in, and who you are. And, and um, there is a, a woman in my life that she, she's on a radio show that I do Council general Nadia Theodore. She said, always be gracious, but not grateful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's important because that says, I know this is what I deserve. I know this is what I've worked for and I don't have to bow down and kiss your ass to show that I'm gracious for this, this space, this opportunity and where I am right now. And I, and I think that deals more with, um, when we're dealing with, um, white America or right. with any opportunity where someone has, uh, you know, appears to have allegiance over you. You can always be gracious. But when you have worked for it, what is there to be grateful for? You work for it. Mm-hmm. I've earned this. I've earned the right. I've done some work on myself to, to say I'm, I'm proud of where I am right now. Graciously. Message. Message. <laughs> yes. I love the smile. Graciously. Graciously. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I feel like we can talk like all night. I feel like we can keep talking, but but I I don't know. I don't know if this part of the interview is as fun as the the first part, but you know, this was one, this part of the story 
is more fresh, you know, and more new kind of. So, you know, emotions about these things are still there. Um, but yeah, that's now the, the crier episodes are the ones that always take off because oh, yes. they're, they're real. They're, I mean, you, you're a crier anyway. You have cried at every one of my speaking engagements like somebody's auntie from the beginning. It's who you are. Yeah, number one. So you add the fact that you're just emotional, an emotional person to the fact that this stuff is still raw and fresh and, and yeah. a lot of it was not that long ago. Um, and I think there are things that are soft spots for us that we never heal from, right? And yeah. when, you call up, when you call up those memories and how it made you feel, it's a natural reaction to have emotions spill out uh, out of you when you are recounting that. So for me, it's not about on this show, oh, the episode is not as fun. It's It's about, is every episode transparent? And we all have many sides of ourselves and some things are a, a, a yuck it up. We cracking up about this. And then there are other seasons where it's like, ah, no, that, that is a bit heavier, but it's a part of my truth. And it's another facet of me and my experience and what makes me the woman that I am today. So we ride those waves sometimes in the same episode. So it's fine. Child, Demarcus, you're going to have to do some editing. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he keeps, he keeps in the good stuff now. He keeps it in. Okay, okay. You might okay. not be happy with everything he keeps uh, saying. It's fine. It's fine. I know. And I am proud of you. I am proud of you. And I am honored that we have been able to keep a friendship through, through the distance, through the changes, through maybe not having much in common work-wise, you know, as we've changed directions. But I'm honored to be on December 26th. I remember the first time you told me about it and what it meant to you and, and the vision that you had for it. And to see it come to fruition consistently. How many shows have you guys done? This is 134. That ain't nothing to sneeze at, boo. That ain't nothing to sneeze at. That's a big deal. And, you know, I, I've been looking forward to this. I had so much fun the first time. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. You're like, so. <laughs> this is what happens, man. It sneaks up on you. You get talking about things. <laughs> you know, revisiting that stuff and it gets real. But this is what the show is all about. We are not a monolith, lift, as you mentioned. Our stories are are layered, but we're all, you know, we're deeply rooted. And, you know, those roots sometimes, it, it calls up things. And mm-hmm. that's perfectly okay. But I knew you were going to cry. It, I mean, I knew that before you did probably, so. Yeah, I didn't know it's going to be, a, I didn't know it's going to be a jerky jerky. But I told you, I was like, I'm feeling real emotional today. I was out <laughs> getting some food and I started crying about something that didn't even need no tears. I was like, oh yeah, they're going to come down today. Yeah, I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> but that's, you know, you're working TV, you know, that's gold. We live for uh, that. I should have been an actress with all of these free flowing tears I got to offer to people. Maybe I can <laughs> bottle these tears up and sell them to the networks. <laughs> oh, gosh. So tell us, you know, people are going to want to reach out to you after this. So where can they find you online? So um, I Instagram, it's Tekoa K, T-E-K-O-A-K. Um, the Technique Agency is on Instagram is T-E-K-N-I-Q-U-E Agency. Um, and I'm not usually that active on Facebook, but in quarantine, I've been connecting more with family. I've felt the need to, you know, it's like, that's where your aunties and your uncles and your cousins yes, are, right? Not- <laughs> Facebook. They love yeah. it. 
So I've been more on Facebook um, during this COVID time, just feeling the need to connect to family. So it's Tacoa Hash um, on Facebook. And um, yeah, so keep up with us. More good things to come. We we are looking forward to getting back uh, full time with our shows and discovering new talent that's out there and being a part of more people's growth and just seeing them flourish. And, you know, we we're about to launch a new company. So we'll, we'll be talking about it on our social media pages. So look out for it. And for those who are like, want to reach out about real business techniques, website is the technique group.com. It's spelled like my name, T E K N I Q U E the technique group.com. Perfect. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I knew I would, but this was great. Thanks. You're not mad at me for all my tears. Listen, I've known you a long time now. I knew they were coming. It's it's fine. Why would I be mad? Oh, Lord. I had to take a break to get it together. (laughs) I knew that. I was prepared for this. I can't wait to hear it. I know. We're going to have to do it in person. We had to do it in person when all of this is over with. Well, you know, I was supposed to come to Atlanta to record and COVID shut that down. So I have <sighs> tickets on Delta that are waiting for me. So I will be Boom. there. Boom. It's We're ready happen. for you. We're ready yeah. for you. I to our listeners. I love you too, boo. I'm so happy we did this. It felt very cathartic. Ooh, and I didn't realize we were going to talk as much about our interface and how our stories intertwine, but that was good. It was really we, good. We had to. You know, someone, and I know you're going to do the outro, but someone listened, they were like, I'm trying to remember where I know her from because it's clear that you guys are friends because she was talking about you from like 15 years ago. So she has to know some backstory. Like, yeah, that's my friend. (laughs) And it's so funny because I still have like numbers in my phone where I'm like, or people will text me out of the blue, like, hey, what's up? You know, just check on How do I know this person? And it, you know how they say everybody in Hollywood was connected to Kevin Bacon somehow? That really my circle is like everybody's connected to Tacoa. Like it is all these offshoots when I really think about like, how did I meet this person in the industry? It always links back to you. It, if I just go deep enough through the degrees of separation, it literally, you are, you're, you're ground zero. You're, you're the one. It's true. It's true. Someone just brought this up yesterday. It's like you are, it's not six degrees of separation for you. My, my good friend. I, um, it's funny. Yeah. She was saying, she was like, I feel like, you know, everyone. That's why I feel like you're a 60 some year old because you know, everybody, or you know, somebody that knows somebody. And I'm like, I do. I don't know what that's about, but I need to make good on it. (laughs) Yes. And I just want to say shout out to the artists that you've hooked me up with over the years who I love. Can't beat my face. Uh, nobody else can beat my face the way they do Jamal. Jamal, Tish Ferguson, who's yes. been on the show back when like we were doing in person and using makeup and glam and all that great stuff. So shout out to them also. So um, proud of them. Absolutely. But to our listeners, listen, I know you're going to have questions. Those of you who are interested in the industry, I think somebody has already reached out to Tacoa. <laughs> yes. Drop her a line. She's all knowing she has the role of the decks, okay? I'm not saying she can help all of you. Um, but And if you're an artist or a creative who's interested in being on the roster, please reach out to Stephanie as well. They're doing amazing yes. things and creating opportunities. Um, don't think that they're going to do it for you for free. But uh, yeah, reach out for sure. If you enjoyed this episode, you know we are completely built on word of mouth at this point. 
like, share, subscribe, tell somebody that knows somebody. We are not a show without you. So we appreciate your support. If you've gleaned something from this, pass it on. We all grow together through our individual stories as well as as a collective. We can advance if we're more transparent about what we've been through. Uh, So let somebody know about what you've heard on this episode and tell them to listen as well. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.